Hello and welcome to A History of the United States, episode 134, The Townsend Acts. In our last episode, we looked at the reaction to the repeal of the Stamp Act in America, and then the fallout in Parliament as the Rockingham Ministry fell to be replaced with the Ministry of Pitt, now the Earl of Chatham. Chatham's plans were somewhat incoherent, and it became clear he was in no fit state to become Prime Minister. As he took time away from public life, power shifted to the Chancellor of the Exchequer, Charles Townsend. Today, we turn to look at what Townsend did with it. We introduced Charles Townsend in our last episode, and gave an overview of his career prior to becoming Chancellor of the Exchequer in Pitt's ministry. The three things I really want to highlight are, one, that he had extensive experience dealing with the colonies from his days on the Board of Trade. Two, that his experience also led him to develop an interest in taxation. And three, that both of these prior points placed him very much on the same wavelength as Grenville. On January the 26th, 1767, Grenville introduced a motion to the House of Commons asserting that America should be taxed. He was clearly still bitter about his defeat in the repeal of the Stamp Act. It was defeated, but when issuing the government's response, Townsend asserted that he knew of how taxation could be extracted from America without resistance. The next move Townsend made came a month later, when he announced a reduction in the land tax. This was a hugely popular move in the Commons. To quote prominent Whig Edmund Burke, he conformed exactly to the temper of the House, and he seemed to guide because he was always sure to follow it. Now, I'm sure you're asking, wait, Jamie, Townsend was reducing taxes. Didn't you tell us last episode that Pitt's government was facing a financial crisis trying to pay the debt of the Seven Years' War with adventures in the East? Well, yes, the government was in the middle of a financial crisis. However, the mood in Britain was shifting against the Americans. To the average Brit, they felt that Americans were not paying their fair share. The cost of military garrisons in North America alone was over £400,000 per annum. So, Townsend reduced taxes in Britain, and I'm sure you can guess what his plan was. But, before we get into taxation, I want to talk about what was going on in New York. New York had been a hotspot during the Stamp Act crisis, and reports started to arrive in Britain that the colony was refusing to comply with the Quartering Act. This was combined with a petition which arrived from the New York merchants, which was intended as an olive branch. There had been fierce resistance to the direct tax of the Stamp Act, but an indirect tax, such as customs duties, could be a workable solution. Dr. Franklin believed them to be an acceptable compromise and made this suggestion to the British government. The petition, therefore, suggested implementing a tariff on foreign rum. But the petition came with criticisms of existing trade laws that merely inflamed British sensibilities. 
This was coupled with a message from Major General Gage, when he informed his superiors that the colonists were making strides towards independency. Shelbourne proposed that the governor of New York be authorised to station soldiers in private houses, but this was opposed by everybody else. Conway wanted a port duty to pay for quartering troops, but this was viewed as too complicated. Townsend's own proposal was that the Crown refuse to authorise any laws passed by the New York Assembly unless the colony obeyed the Quartering Act, which the Cabinet would only feel comfortable doing if it was done through an Act of Parliament. A fourth option was an Act for the Quartering to be paid by an order of the Governor from money raised for that purpose within the province. There was a fifth proposal, also Shelbourne's, a statute to reiterate the Declaratory Act. Propose a blanket pardon if the order was obeyed within three months, and that failing to do so would be treason for questioning Parliament's authority. The Cabinet wanted Chatham to make a decision, except he was in no state to. Townsend's proposal was adopted on March 12th, and introduced to Parliament on May 13th. It passed on June 5th, and was given royal assent on July 2nd. The New York Restraining Act, it turned out, was completely unnecessary. The New York Assembly had already complied with the Quartering Act in June, and all the New York Restraining Act did was act as an usurpation of authority that annoyed the colonies. This was remembered with the rest of the legislation that Townsend was set to introduce. Next up was the Revenue Act, which passed on June 26th. This set up duties on glass, lead, painters' colours, paper and tea. Writs of assistance were authorised to be used in their collection, and a general warrant could be used to search private property for smuggled goods. This was just the beginning of British interference. Three days later, on June 29th, the Commissioners of Customs Act was passed. This set up an American Board of Customs Commissioners at Boston to enforce customs collection. A year later, the Vice Admiralty Court Act was passed, which some did not include with the Townsend Act properly, which set up for Vice Admiralty districts in Halifax, Boston, Philadelphia and Charlestown to further control the mercantilist system and act as law enforcement, crucially operating without juries. The cherry on the cake was that these funds would be used to pay the governors and the customs officials, vastly weakening the colonial assemblies which had paid them in the past. Receiving funds from the colonial assemblies, rather than from London, had long been a complaint of the colonial governors, but during decades of neglect from Britain, they'd had no other choice. It had now become a tradition. No taxation without representation, which all colonies had independently reached. There were potential merits to Townsend plans, but it was all 70 years too late. By now the colonies had established political identities, they were effectively self-governing. What all but a few of the most radical Americans and insightful Westminster statesmen were blind to 
is that America was, to all intents and purposes, already independent of Britain. They could not be controlled or forced to do things against their will. This had been proved by the repeal of the Stamp Act. A series of local oligarchies had emerged, the planters in the south and the merchants in the north, which exercised their control through tight grips on the general assemblies. All that needed to happen was for them to be provoked, and the Townsend Acts did a pretty good job of that. Indeed, Townsend was quite pleased with what he had done. If you think back to our episodes on mercantilism, I know that was a long time ago, it was a preoccupation of 18th century Britain to control their economic sphere and not to let bullion escape to spheres dominated by their colonial rivals. Cheap Dutch tea had been smuggled into North America, so part of the Revenue Act actually reduced the taxes on British tea. Townsend thought he had made tea cheaper for the Americans, rather than de facto raising the price by clamping down on the smugglers. He thought he'd helped establish how Britain would control the North American colonies, something he believed was sorely needed after the Stamp Act crisis. Through all of these actions, Townsend had managed to perfectly set up the next crisis in North America. Indeed, all there was left to do was for him to exit the stage. Charles Townsend suddenly died on September 4th, 1767, at the age of 42. Hugh Brogan, in The Penguin History of the USA, has a nice little summary of where things stood. Quote, When news of the Townsend Acts reached America, the only question was what form resistance would take this time. So clear was the challenge whether to the rights of the citizens or the powers of the assemblies, that some sudden, single, vigorous outburst, like that which had defeated the Stamp Act, might have seemed a probable response. If, instead, the reaction was prolonged over three years or so, and varied greatly in intensity from place to place, and time to time, it was, paradoxically, because opposition to Townsend touched even more people, than had opposition to Grenville, because the Patriot leaders saw and seized the opportunity to devise new and even more formidable organisations of resistance, which necessarily took time, and because this last development began seriously to alarm certain American interests, so that where the Stamp Act crisis had, on the whole, united the colonials, for even Thomas Hutchinson had objected to the British policy. The Townsend crisis, just because it ran deeper, divided them. Massachusetts, as might have been expected, led the way. End quote. And that is where we'll leave it for this week. Next time, we'll head on over to Massachusetts to look at the resistance to the Townsend Act, catch up with our old friend Sam Adams, and introduce the man with a fancy signature. John Hancock. Thanks for listening. I will see you then.